And, you know, my question is just like, why? Like, what are you so afraid of? And why is that fear driving your inability to understand that transgender people are people too? And especially when we're talking about transgender youth who have, you know, some of the highest risk of suicide. We talk about transgender women of color who experience some of the highest rates of homicide in this country. Like, you know, why are we targeting people who are already so deeply targeted? Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we speak to Katie Barnes, journalist from ESPNW, about the attack on trans athletes right now in the world of sports. Also, I've got some choice words about the confrontation between Russell Westbrook and a Utah Jazz fan with the hopes that perhaps Utah, of all places, is turning a corner. Also, I've got Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down awards and more. But first, Katie Barnes. So, Katie, before we talk about anything, and I know we want to talk about the attack on trans athletes in sports right now, and I'd love your perspective on that. I couldn't help notice on your bio that you went to St. Olaf. Is this correct? It is correct. Well, see, I went to McAllister, so we got a little rivalry thing going on before we did. Even you started. really? Yes, I did. Associated Colleges of the Twin Cities, baby. I know. I toured McAllister. Really? I thought about it for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> and then you're like, "Nah, Saint Olaf." I really like pretty buildings. <laughs> <laughs> then McAllister like, is not the place for you. I know. Like both McAllister and Carlton, I toured, and I was like, "Olaf is prettier," so I'm going to go there. Nice. And I also, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I also couldn't help but notice you majored in Russian studies. Is that correct? Uh, yes, it was one of my majors. I also majored in history and American studies. Wow. Sort of, you know, you know you've got the same majors as like Greg Popovich, almost exactly. I mean, basically, Pop and I are just, you know, besties intellectually anyway. Yes. <laughs> Exchanging books. And whatnot. Can I just ask you before we start how you made the journey from Russian studies and history to uh, becoming a prominent sports writer? <laughs> um, yeah, it's mildly convoluted. So I'll like try and streamline it. But, you know, I thought I was going to be a lawyer for a long time growing up. And then when I went to college, I very much was like, I really love history and I love Russian political history. So that's what I'm going to do but I sucked at Russian. <laughs> and so I was not going to get my PhD in Russian history. Um, but at the time I got really into LGBT activism on my campus. And one of the things that they say to like young student leaders is like, you go into nonprofits or you do um, higher education. And so I went after I graduated to Miami, Ohio to get a master's in higher education and while I was there, I continued to do my activism, but on a more national level. And I met my mentor at a sports LGBT summit in Portland in the summer of 2014. Who was your mentor? Uh, Wade Davis. Oh, I know Wade. Yeah, Wade's really dope. Wow. Um, and so I, through him, I was introduced to a lot of people, including the executive, the executive director of Feministing.com. And I started writing for them in early 2015. 
And by the time I finished my grad program, I was like, you know what? I don't want to do higher education. I want to go do something else. And so I went on a 50 state LGBT food tour and applied to ESPN's digital media associate program. And they hired me. And that's how it happened. Wow. And at Feministing, uh, was that Jessica Valenti? Who you were introduced to? Um, no, it was after Jessica. So at the time, the it was being run by three people. Um, I specifically met um, Lori Edelman, who uh, was working at, at in communications at Planned Parenthood, um, and then also for Feministing. Um, and like Maya Dusenberry was like the editorial director, and Joss was running. Um, also, I guess editorial, but like doing some like external outreach. Now, now, did you have an aha moment where you realized that you could express your activism through sports writing? Um, yeah, I think, you know, while I was at Feministing, I realized that at least within um, folks who are talking a lot about gender and who are concerned with uh, feminist ideas, that the knowledge and the discourse around sport was really lacking. Um, and so I started writing about sports there. And I got to write about all my favorite things um, that I like talking about. And, you know, that particularly overlapped with my interest in, I think, telling uh, compelling LGBTQ stories um, rather than just like, oh, here's so-and-so and and they came out today. Um, And so while I was doing that, I realized that there is a real place for to have the kinds of conversations I wanted to have. And as I've been at ESPN, I would say that, you know, my activism hat has, it's not quite the same and I don't think it needs to be and, or that it should be, um, as I've embraced more of like a journalistic way of thinking. Uh, but I think there's certainly a place for the kinds of stories I want to tell. And I love that I get to do that. Uh, when did you first write and what attracted you to writing about, uh, trans athletes? I wrote a three like piece, um, like a set of three columns for feministing about um, LGBTQ issues in sport. And I specifically, I think the second of them was about um, the way that we police women. And that involved uh, some commentary on intersex athletes as well as transgender athletes. And so I've had an interest in that uh, for a long time. And Then it was when Texas passed, uh, well, it was February of 2016, Texas uh, decided to put um, its uh, transgender policy onto like the ballot for their schools to vote on. Um, And I started paying attention then and was like, you know, this is going to be something that we should talk about. Um, And when it went into that policy was, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no. So the policy, um, what it did is, it codified what Texas was already doing, which was determining a gender uh, for a sport competition based on birth certificate. And it was significant in that a lot of states in recent years have been moving towards more inclusive policies and Texas decided to do the opposite. Um, despite whatever pushback they were getting, they very much were like, nope, this is what we're doing. And that policy passed with like 95% of the votes from the superintendents. It passed overwhelmingly. This is what the Texas um, superintendents wanted to do. And it went into effect on August 1st of 2016. And at that point, I started pulling on every lever I could to find somebody who was willing to go on the record, um, who is trans and plays sports because there are lots of trans kids everywhere. I think more than people think. 
Um, and it wasn't until Mac Beggs won regionals and qualified for state that I really found a narrative um, that would really work for the story. And so I started following him then, and that was in the spring of 2017. And then also a couple months later, Andrea Yearwood uh, started running in Connecticut and I started paying attention to her as well and started talking to that family. And I focus on youth because I think that's where, uh, that's the conversation that often gets lost when we have these discussions about what is fair and, you know, how do we keep sport as to have like a level playing field, so to speak. Um, oftentimes, you know, what Martina Navratilova is talking about has nothing to do with high school kids, but, you know, her words are used against high school kids. And we saw that literally happen a week after she published her op-ed. Oh, we're going to talk so about really, that. Believe me. Yeah, I'm sure. So like, I really wanted to focus on high school kids to say, this isn't just an abstract issue. This is something that's affecting it communities all across the country and these kids are just trying to play sports mm. um yeah so okay, before uh we, we get into what's happening right now can you just tell us a little bit about compare and contrast the narrative of, of mac beggs and um and andrea yearwood yeah so mac um is a transgender boy and at the time uh he was wrestling in texas he won state both his junior and senior year and he began to medically transition, meaning taking hormone therapy uh, early in his high school career. But because of Texas's policy, he was forced to wrestle against girls and it started a huge firestorm. Uh, Texas is one of only, well, it's one of only nine states that has that specific policy regarding birth certificate or any kind of medical uh, or legal intervention for transgender kids. But then in addition to that, Texas is one of only a handful of states that actually sanctions girls wrestling. So it was like a particular hmm. confluence of these issues for him. Um, because if he was in a different state that didn't have girls wrestling, but also had a restrictive policy, it may not have been applied in the same way. Because in a state like Indiana, for example, there is no girls wrestling. If you are assigned female at birth and you choose to wrestle, you're wrestling against everyone else who's wrestling without regards to gender at all. Um, but in Texas, that's not how it works. So that's what Mac was going through. Um, and it was a very, very bright light shined on him, you know, to the point where whenever a, an article is written about transgender athletes that involves Texas, or sometimes even when it doesn't involve Texas or anything regarding politics in Texas that affects transgender people, it's his face that's usually in the article. Um, so that's, I know that's been interesting for him. And then Andrea is a transgender girl, so she was assigned male at birth and began to socially transition um, in like her freshman year of high school is when she first started running with girls. And in Connecticut, the policy is that the school district decides what team is best from a gender perspective is best suited for you. But... The, they also underscore that Connecticut state statute bars any kind of discrimination based on gender identity and gender expression. Um, and so very much are saying, if this person identifies this way and is living this way, you have to put them on the proper team. Um, and that does not require any kind of medical intervention at all. Um, and so Andrea won 100, the 100 meter uh, and 200 meters uh, state championships in her class, which is a smaller class size. Uh, in the spring of 2017, her freshman year, and then also won indoor. Um, and that's sort of where my story stops. 
Uh, but it continued on. At the time, you know, Andrea wasn't really getting that visceral pushback in the way that I was seeing with Mac. Um, you know, I remember being with Mac and you could just hear kids talking in the stands and just saying some awful things. And, you know, going to meets where Andrea was running, it was all very quiet. It was very Connecticut, very New England. You know, no one was going to say anything, um, even as, you know, there were some rumblings, but it wasn't really overt. And then in the spring of 2018, um, another transgender girl comes out and starts running in Connecticut and she is faster than Andrea and she wins New England and a firestorm for Andrea and Terry um, really built and is something that's still happening in the state. Um, And it actually was those two winning in indoor that caused the most recent firestorm around young transgender athletes. Um, that sort of rippled through conservative media over the last couple of weeks. Yeah. Now, how do you respond? Like it, when someone says uh, to you, uh, trans women are threatening women's sports, are taking the place on these sports teams that otherwise would go to cisgender women, that are taking scholarships that would otherwise go to cis women. What, what's your response when, when confronted with that argument? Well, I think there's so many things that are going on when people are saying that. One is there's an othering of transgender women. As you know, in Connecticut, there's been a lot of rumblings around how this is a Title IX issue. And it's, first of all, Title IX is about access to education and to sport um, for women. And so if you believe that transgender women are women, then there's not a problem. Um, but the undercurrent of this continues to be the invalidation of these kids' identities and their humanity. And for me as a reporter, what I've tried to do is sort of flip that on its head by believing who these kids say that they are and centering their humanity and re-examining the problem from that perspective. Um, And so like that is usually my response. Um, But I also think that there's this there's this fear about how somehow there's just going to be this influx of trans women just stealing things from cis women and that it just from an evidence perspective does not exist it has not happened um and frankly when it comes to a sport like track which is based on time it's not the same as i mean if you run a fast time fast enough to get recruited then you're going to get recruited it has nothing to do with what somebody next to you is doing and who they are and how they identify. Um, but I understand that it's complicated for a lot of folks and the response is really not based in fact. It's really based on emotion and a certain level of prejudice that definitely exists. Do you differentiate between the clear evidence, I think, in right-wing media who are trying to use this as, well, first we tried bathrooms, now let's go to sports uh, mm-hmm. as a way to attack trans people? Um, Do you differentiate between them and, say, people who are just genuinely confused about how this should operate and more need to be educated? Or do you think that there's just too much connective tissue of intolerance between those two groups? I mean, I'm in the camp that I think whether or not you're acting in good faith matters. Mm. Uh, I think that there are people who certainly are using this issue um, as a, like for political purposes. Um, and I don't mean that in a partisan way, but just like when it comes to the politics of driving people apart. Um, 
And that's definitely happening. And it doesn't matter what you say to some of those folks. I, I don't necessarily think that they will change their minds. And for me, it's not necessarily my job to try and change people's minds. But I think just from a conversation perspective, um, you know, people have a lot of assumptions that are based not necessarily, that are based mostly in what they think they know when it comes to science um, and when it comes to our cultural understandings of gender and biology. And, you know, when you have a conversation with those people and I think really show them you know, who these kids are, then we end up in a healthier place. Um, and for me, I think I do think that's a little bit different than engaging with uh, some folks who have no desire um, to engage in good faith at all. Mm. First of all, we, we appreciate the cameo by your cat. Uh, it was it's actually outside. Oh, really? Are so, you serious? Yeah, that's a loud ass cat. I know the window is like just cracked a little bit. <laughs> there are like these three stray cats that like live Aww. around my apartment building. I know it like hurts me. I say we need to move because my heart breaks every time <laughs> I hear them meowing. Oh my God. So um, I, I, I personally, um, my, 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 I'm not exaggerating when I say this, like my, my heart has like felt like almost like it's breaking from some of the stuff Martina Navratilova has raised. Um, I want to read a quote from Martina that she put on the Twitters. She said, mm-hmm. you can't just proclaim yourself a female and be able to compete against women. There must be some standards and having a penis and competing as a woman would not fit that standard. What was, yeah. first of all, before any of this broke, who is Martina in your mental constellation of things? I mean, Martina is one of the like first LGBT athletes that I ever knew of just in general, like as a queer person who played sports, like I learned who Billie Jean King was and I learned who Martina was, even though I had no connection to tennis athletically at all. And so like, for me, like she's been in like the queer pantheon of like our sport greats, um, which is what makes this particularly painful. I think not just for myself, but for a number of people in the LGBTQ community, um, it feels, it's just, it's really rough um, from that perspective. But yeah, I've always thought very highly of her. And what do you think of the set of arguments that she's putting forward? And, and I mean, Martina is also strongly identifies herself as left wing in broader politics, uh, you know, not someone who subscribes to the Daily Caller or, or any of these uh any of these sites uh so so what what do we make of martina oh that's hard yeah i think you know there i've seen people who are prominent transgender athletes uh reach out to her and want to have a conversation and i have not seen that entreaty returned um and i think that's worth noting you know it's very clear that she has an opinion that is not based in any kind of evidence. Um, even like that initial, like that initial op-ed, it just largely just didn't make sense as a piece of writing and argument. Um, but it, you know, the one, the arguments that she is putting out just don't, I mean, they're very crass. And I think that tweet that you read really shows that um, number one, because it conflates body parts with gender and, I know that we do that culturally, but perhaps we shouldn't. Um, Number two, you know, this idea that she puts forth in her op-ed that somehow there's a right way to be trans and a wrong way to be trans. 
And that, you know, comes across uh, through specifically like surgical um, intervention in terms of like, she very crassly basically alludes to bottom surgery and, you know, and then to have that projected onto teenagers is just so unhelpful. And I think her surprise uh, at the fact that that was happening shows just, uh, just displays like a real lack of understanding of the kind of argument that she was making and to whom it would be sentimental and how that argument would be used outside of, you know, the inner, the places on the internet that she has put in. Um, yeah. Like she didn't quite know what she was getting into. I don't think. Um, and that much has been made very clear in the last couple weeks. Now, and, and one of the things that's come out of this is, I mean, she's been defended by like Billie Jean King and Pam Shriver, but on this weird basis, like they're not defending her politics, they're defending Martina almost as like the icon, like this is someone who has every right to start this conversation for everything she's done and, and, and comments like that. What, what do you, how do you respond to that? And especially figures of such high profile uh, standing up for Martina? I mean, I think it just puts everybody in a bad spot, um, what Martina has done. Um, It puts pressure on her friends and on her supporters to rationalize what she has done or to turn against her. Like, there is really, like, no choice uh, that's good for anyone Mm -hmm. involved. Um, It's a great point. And, you know, it's like, I I don't necessarily blame the people who are defending her for defending her. I mean, would it be nice if Billie Jean King had said, you know, trans women are women? Um, but I will say that I think, you know, what Billie Jean King has done, um, in terms of supporting transgender people in other ways, and also the work of the Women's Sports Foundation, you know, it, she does good work, um, and her foundation does good work. And so that's just like a real tension, I think. Um, but yeah, you know, I can't, like, this is so deeply personal for so many people. And it's also so deeply uncomfortable for so many people. Um, in terms of thinking about how do we have these conversations. And to me, it all comes back to what I consider to be a very sexist notion that anyone who's assigned male at birth is going to be able to be anyone who's assigned female at birth in some in any athletic competition. And like, that's just subjectively false, but it informs how we discuss transgender athletes. It informs how we discuss intersex athletes. It informs how we discuss women's sports in general. Right. Like somehow this idea that like Maya Moore is an inferior basketball player or that she couldn't hang with NBA players on a, in a pickup game just because she's assigned female. Like that doesn't make any sense to me. She's one of the best basketball players in the world. But like that kind of idea is placed upon female athletes all the time. And so then to see high profile female athletes then take that notion and re-weaponize it against those who are even more marginalized is just highly disappointing. And it also gives credence to that criticism in the first place, which I think is just a false criticism of women's sports in general. Um, And so like, as more and more people kind of line up behind Martina to accept that fundamental argument that she's making, um, it actually I think does more harm to the validity of women's sports in the long run than this fear of an influx of transgender athletes could possibly do. 
Now, her words have also uh, been invoked by lawmakers in South Dakota and Montana to defend <laughs> anti-LGBTQ legislation um, and by groups arguing that LGBTQ inclusion in federal non-discrimination laws hurts cis women. Um, and these are lawmakers who would have no use for Martina if not for her <laughs> raising these issues. I mean, don't you think that should at least shift her and others who say they're doing this for progressive reasons? And why doesn't it? Why isn't that like the ultimate exposure for them about how reactionary these politics are? Yeah, well, I think like that's why that's, you know, what I said that Martina wasn't really aware of what she was walking into when she did it. Like she's expressed uh, frustration and surprise on social media at the way that her words have been used. Um, and I think it's one of the primary reasons that she did like that somewhat of a walk back uh, on her personal blog. Uh, so there has been some movement because the people that are agreeing with her are people that she disagrees with uh, politically. And she's been pretty open about that. And I think it has been challenging. Like I haven't had a conversation with Martina, but just noticing what's happening in her public persona um, I think there's a little bit of tension there, but I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like for legislators to be using her words specifically then to, we're not like, they're not having a conversation about elite athletics, which is I think what the conversation that Martina thought she was having. Um, but instead they're being used to justify um, anti-transgender measures specifically against high schoolers who are just trying to play sports is, um, I mean, that's like the real danger of what Martina did. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you know, one would hope that over time she will learn more and rethink how she's presenting the conversation that she says she wants to have. But like I said, you know, I've seen folks reach out to her and want to have a conversation and it does not appear that she is interested in having a conversation. Um, it appears that, you know, she really has an opinion and she wants to say that opinion and that's where she's at and that is unmovable and only time will tell i think how that will officially sort of um, evolve or not but from where she's at right now you know i don't know that she has any desire to learn from anyone first quick shout out to trans activists and aclu lawyer chase strangio who just wrote an amazing column about this for the advocate and who i learned uh, so much from about how lawmakers are using Martina's words. Just a quick uh, hat tip there. So if you could interview Martina, what would be the first question you think you'd ask her? <laughs> I think I would ask her what she's so afraid of. Mm. Interesting. You know? Interesting. Like, yeah, I think a lot of these reactions are coming from just a real paralyzing fear and this is true, I think, for a number of cisgender women who are lining up behind these arguments, separate from what is happening from a political perspective, um, but just how this conversation is playing out in the sports world. I think that, you know, I think that fear is real. I'm just not entirely sure why they feel that or where they think or like where it's coming from, because frankly, like there are 17 states, including the including Washington, D.C., who have inclusive policies for transgender athletes. And we only talk about Connecticut because two transgender girls won in Connecticut and continue to win. And to think that they are somehow the first transgender athletes to compete in Connecticut is 
absolutely false or that they're the only transgender athletes that are competing in Connecticut. Statistically speaking, that's also probably false. Um, and it's not like transgender athletes aren't competing in the other 16 states. It's just that they're not winning or they're not winning publicly. And that is what's like driving this fear that somehow there are so many transgender women who are going to take something from cisgender women. And rhetorically, that's not that far away from what has been used against transgender women having access to bathrooms, right? Like that somehow their mere existence and presence is a threat to cisgender women. And, you know, my question is just like, why? Like, what are you so afraid of? And why is that fear driving your inability to understand that transgender people are people too? And especially when we're talking about transgender youth who have, you know, some of the highest risk of suicide. We talk about transgender women of color who experience some of the highest rates of homicide in this country. Like, you know, why are we targeting people who are already so deeply targeted? And um, yeah, and sort of like couching that as some sort of like feminist, um, I don't know, like feminist idea, I suppose. Yeah, and who benefits from that targeting as well. Like, like mm-hmm. what, 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 yeah, just, yeah, you hear what I'm saying. So you've been so generous with your time as, as there, I always ask a couple of things at the end of interviews, like, is there anything else you'd like to add? Anything you think we're missing? Any point you'd like to make? No, I think I made my points. I think so too. Uh, yeah. Katie Barnes, speaker, lecturer, writer, public figure. <laughs> and uh, the other thing I always ask folks is, um, uh, what kind of music are you listening to right now? Like as you're doing your work, as you're thinking about these incredibly challenging subjects, what what's the music that uh, that follows you down those roads? That's so funny. So I write the way that I write is I typically write with one song on repeat. Yeah. Um, like it just it's just happening, and I've been writing to Fire by Sarah Bareilles recently. I'm a huge Sarah Bareilles fan and I cannot wait for her new album. So I've just been kind of in a Sarah Bareilles hole for like the last like three weeks in preparation of this album release. Nice. (laughs) So we'll be playing Sarah Bareilles as we go to break and it'll infuse this interview. So you'll have a record of Sarah Bareilles uh, animating your thoughts. Oh, nice. That's what I'm talking about. That's usually what we do on the pod here. So. Yeah, uh, that's people, dope. People tend to appreciate it. And by the way, every time I talk to writers, that they always either say like the one album or the one song theory of writing. So it gets in the head and you know, you start to phase it out and it just sort of becomes part of the atmosphere as you focus on what you're doing. Exactly. I've always been like that. It doesn't matter if I'm reading or if I'm writing. It's just it's a thing that I do. No, me too. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Katie Barnes, I've wanted to do this for a while, so I really appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This has been great, and I'm pumped. That's cool. That's a first. We've never had anybody say they were pumped before. All right, cool. Shout out to St. Olaf. I'm not going to be petty. And and be well. Thanks. Right back at you. If you want to learn more about Katie Barnes or read more of their work, just go to kebarnes.com. We'll be back right after this. We were, we were never gonna catch fire. 
be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words about what went down in Utah between a certain fan and Russell Westbrook. Okay, look. Out of crisis can often come progress. And perhaps at long last, that's happening in Salt Lake City, the home of the Utah Jazz. The crisis occurred last Monday night when the Oklahoma City Thunder's all-world point guard Russell Westbrook was taunted by a Jazz fan in highly racialized terms. Before people knew what the fan, and his name is Shane Keisel, had said, and before they even knew who Keisel was... The sports world had a collective conniption fit at light speed as Russell Westbrook was caught on video cursing him out. This is what everybody saw Westbrook say before he even got to comment for himself about what happened. He said, I promise you, I swear to God, I swear to God, you and your wife, Then after the game, Westbrook said, Keisel and his wife, after some back and forth, told him to, quote, get on your knees like you're used to. He was also called boy by another fan. Shane Keisel denied saying get on your knees and gave a defiant interview where he called Westbrook classless on local news right after the game. But following the viral incident, Keisel also rushed home and deleted old social media posts Alas, the internet is forever, so we know that these social media posts included racist trash like the use of the N-word and saying Russell Westbrook should go back where he came from. Hashtag MAGA, as in Make America Great Again, the Donald Trump calling card. And he also called Westbrook a classless shit and somebody should kick his ass. After the game, his teammate Patrick Patterson defended Westbrook, writing on social media... Fans can say shit about a man's family, wife, and kids. Tell a player to get down on your knees like you're used to. As men, what do you expect us to do? Shut up and dribble? No one is held accountable for their actions except for us. Fans are protected in every way possible, but not us. Another teammate, Raymond Felton, also backed up Westbrook's incident. This incident also doesn't exist in a vacuum. Salt Lake City has a long reputation for fans treating visiting black NBA players poorly, to put it mildly. As 10-year NBA veteran and my WPFW radio co-host, Etan Thomas, said to me, I remember the atmosphere in Utah reminding me of one of those movies from the 1960s when they had segregated schools and the black team would come play the white team, like the movie Glory Road or something. That's what the atmosphere reminded me of. And hearing different NBA players talk now, Not much has changed from when I played. But again, out of crisis, calcification can crumble, and we may be seeing a step in the right direction. In the aftermath of this incident, the Utah Jazz acted swiftly and surprisingly by banning Keisel from future games. After speaking to witnesses and viewing videotape, 
the team determined that Westbrook was telling the truth. Jazz president Steve Stark said in a statement, Everyone deserves the opportunity to enjoy and play the game in a safe, positive, and inclusive environment. Offensive and abusive behavior does not reflect the values of the Miller family, our organization, and the community. We all have a responsibility to respect the game of basketball, and more importantly, each other as human beings. In another welcome development, Utah Jazz star player Donovan Mitchell put out his own lengthy statement where he wrote in part, Racism and hate speech hurt us all, and this is not the first time something like this has happened in our arena. Over the coming months, I will work with the team, my teammates, and the league to make sure our arenas and our communities are more inclusive and welcoming. That includes bans on hate speech and racism. And Utah teammate Tabo Cephalosha, who y'all may remember from the time the NYPD broke his leg when he was a member of the Atlanta Hawks, also took to Instagram to say that he, quote, stands 100% with Russell Westbrook. Support and cheer for your team and enjoy the action, but fans like Shane Keisel, who use that platform to spur their hateful and racist views, need to be held accountable. Russell Westbrook was still fined $25,000 by Commissioner Adam Silver, quote, for directing profanity and threatening language to a fan. And I have a problem with that because the league did not find New York Knicks owner James Dolan for basically threatening a fan in New York and getting security just because he told Dolan to, quote, sell the team. But overall, the response to this incident suggests that the NBA and the Jazz organization may be finally turning a corner. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. And the Just Stand Up Award this week goes to the U.S. women's soccer player with Audrey Lord on her back. I'm talking, of course, about Megan Rapino in a game that was held right before International Women's Day where the U.S. women's national team issued a lawsuit against U.S. soccer for a gender inequity, less pay, and poor working conditions. Megan Rapino and all the players on the U.S. team took the pitch with the names of inspiring women emblazoned on the back of their jerseys. Now, some amazing people were chosen for those jersey backs, including people like... Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Sojourner Truth and others, but it was Megan Rapino who chose the legendary writer and self-described, quote, black lesbian mother warrior poet. Megan Rapino, people all may remember as the person who took a knee in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick back in 2016 against racism and in support of his struggle. Rapino also spoke to CBS this morning from France 
where the team is preparing to defend their World Cup title in just a few months. And she said, U.S. soccer is in a very unique position to take an incredibly bold stance. I think we've learned a lot through this process. We've really come together as a group and been able to solidify our unity and our strength and really begun to understand the power of everyone being on the same page. So just stand up to Megan Rapino. Just sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. In honor of Selection Sunday goes to the Duke bandwagon fans. Look, I'm against all things Duke. I have no problem saying that. It's the elitism, it's the elitism, and of course, it's the elitism. But this year, frankly, more than any other that I can remember, Duke is not the team that everybody loves to hate, but the team everybody loves to love. Maybe not everybody, but I've never seen bandwagoning on Duke like this ever before. And of course, it's happening because Duke has the most exciting and intriguing player that we've seen in a generation, probably since LeBron James. And maybe his hype even exceeds that of LeBron James. And his name, of course, is Zion Williamson. Now, I love watching Zion, too. And damn it, Zion is is likable. And... I think I found myself in my own unique position where I'm going to root for Zion to kick all kinds of butt, but there's no way I'm rooting for Duke in this tournament. And for all y'all Duke bandwagon fans, sit your ass down. This is usually the part of the show where I do Kaepernick Watch, where we talk any and all things Colin Kaepernick. But honestly, things have been a little bit slow since the cessation of the lawsuit. Uh, I look forward to doing more with Kaepernick Watch. I know he's raring and revving to go uh, as the months go on. And let me just say, as we are in NFL free agency right now and quarterbacks, uh, some of whom you wouldn't recognize if they walked into your house and said, hello, I'm Ryan Tannehill, um, as long as they're getting more jobs while Colin Kaepernick molts on the sideline, we're going to continue to do Colin Kaepernick Watch here on the Edge of Sports podcast. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Uh, I want to thank Katie Barnes and everybody out there listening as well. You notice we don't have any chirping this week. Chirp! We don't have any of that. Uh, And that thank you to everybody who called in and said they were scared and nervous because they didn't know if their own smoke alarm was going off. Thank you for that. And for everybody out there listening, you can support the Edge of Sports podcast by going to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. It allows us to do more, say more, and operate in a broader way. I mean, every cent we get makes a huge difference. For everybody out there listening, solidarity with my Muslim sisters and brothers on these difficult days without question. Solidarity with people who've been friends of the show like Mahmoud Abdul Raouf and the family of Muhammad Ali and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Solidarity with everybody out there listening who's suffering right now. We are out of here. Peace.
Good morning.